Howard Shore went in here with a goal, that he was so impressed by the craftsmanship and passion that was going into making the movies, that he knew the movies were going to be a masterpiece mm -hmm. on par with the books themselves. Right. And so he thought he wanted to make a masterpiece too. Alright, so welcome to another episode of our podcast. Alright, the only podcast where a trained therapist turned professional musician and trained musician turned professional therapist actually just kind of talk about movies mm -hmm. and stuff. So if you've been here for a while, you know the drill at this point where we've, we've each watched the movie, which is <laughs> Return of the King Extended Edition first half mm -hmm. all right so yeah i'm a little mixed up because it's actually been a while since we watched this because mm -hmm. uh, uh speaking of which apologies for a late episode it's been a while since we've released an actual yeah. episode it's good to be back to it it is right mm -hmm. and, and well it's because we moved we moved cities we got a whole bunch of stuff it's been tricky getting the new setup going up but we're back that's what matters mm -hmm. and so yeah we've each got three scenes that we picked from the movie and we're going to be discussing what we think young film composers and media composers can learn from it. But uh, yeah, it is good to be back. Yeah. So shall we dive right in? Let's do it. All right. So I'm going to assume that my scene is first because I chose the main scene, the opening scene, all right, with yep. Smeagol and Deagle. What happens is in this movie, it opens up with a glimpse into Gollum's past, back when he was still known as Smeagol. Mm -hmm. So we see Smeagol and we see Deagle, two water folk, hobbit things. Um, that people, they're fishing, right? And it's apparently Smeagol's birthday. They're having a grand old time. And then Deagle rediscovers the one ring. He gets mm -hmm. capsized by the fish, goes underwater, and happens to see the ring. All right. Then a fight breaks out over the ring. And Smeagol kills Deagle in order to gain control and take possession of the ring. All right, so things I want you to pay attention to. It's actually kind of three little cool things. There's three themes that are going to play throughout this scene. The first theme is, uh, and all of them, all of them have to do with the one ring. All right, so this first theme is called the history of the ring. All right, and it gets played basically anytime something important within the world of the ring happens. Whenever the ring changes hands or whenever something significant progress in its journey, uh, what have you. So that's going to be the theme that opens up this entire scene. Mm. All right, it's going to be an important one, but it's going to sound very different from the other two movies. And I'll explain more about that next uh, later on. But the second theme also having to do with the ring is called the evil of the ring theme. And this one gets used in lots of scenes that just kind of have to do with Mordor or the evil of the ring. It's, it's, it's a name. All right, but this one is another one that's pretty easy to kind of recognize. All right, now the third theme that we're going to hear in this scene, and they're all used at different moments, is again a theme having to do with the ring. It is called the seduction of the ring. And this theme gets used in scenes that have to do with uh, that portraying the allure, right? Kind of the temptation involved with the ring. In fact, this is, this theme is 
probably the most unique out of the three themes, or technically there are four themes having to do with the th ring, but this is probably the most unique one because it's the only one that's actually typically performed mm. by a children's choir. Okay, so we've got these three themes. They're going to be sprinkled in throughout there. I just wanted to kind of let you know ahead of time so you know what to listen for. But uh, let's watch the scene now, or listen to the scene rather, and just kind of pay attention to the music and see if you can spot when these themes get used. Sound good? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it.
All right, and we'll end it there. So I already talked about how there's three different themes going on. In fact, mm -hmm. Howard Shore wrote four different themes for the ring. And the three here that I mentioned, I'll kind of recap again. We have the history of the ring, which opens all three movies. Mm -hmm. And it gets played at key points of the story anytime, like I said, the ring changes hands, changes ownerships, or that we kind of reveal a significant moment in the ring's journey, mm. right? We also have the evil of the ring because the ring is a very innately evil object that corrupts the, it seeks to corrupt the people that own it uh, to try to get back into its master's hands, Sauron's hands. Um, so anytime there's something involved with evil and the ring, whether the evil is, uh, whether the ring is pushing people to do evil or the ring is, bearing witness to evil or there's something being done evil in the name of the ring or for the sake of the ring, that theme plays. And the third, the kind of subtle one sung by a boy's choir is the seduction of the ring. And it sounds so different because it's supposed to, again, kind of embody the allure of the ring, the temptation of the ring. Of course, the seduction of the ring. Now, a really cool thing about that last one is the last three notes or the last couple notes in that phrase are mirrored in the beginning of the theme for the fellowship. Mm. All right, and Howard Shore did that as a kind of a little nod to show the two forces that are pulling on Frodo and Sam the most throughout mm -hmm. the entire story, the fellowship and the one ring. So there's all kinds of really cool Easter eggs within these stories, mm -hmm. within these themes, because Howard Shore wrote 90 different themes for these movies. All right, and the reason why he was able to do that was because he spent months studying the story before he even wrote a single piece. Yeah. He was reading manuscripts. He was meeting with Tolkien linguistics, uh, like linguists or whatever the people, like who were like fleshing out the languages. He mm -hmm. was talking with Tolkien's family. He was studying all the things that could have potentially inspired Tolkien. He was trying to understand that book and that story just as well as the author. In fact, he says that moving, uh, that being part of this movie, he had a huge goal that he wanted the Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, to be associated with another trilogy of the three highest art forms bringing it to life. The books, the movies, and the music. Mm. All right? And the only way you can do that, the only way you can create such an intricate soundtrack is by taking the time to study your story yeah. and really get to know your story. All right? And so I, wanted to say, I said I wanted to point out how these themes are used. All right? And there's a lot of cool things that we can learn by the way they're used. So that first one, the seduction, or not, the, the history of the ring. All right, that gets used several times throughout the scene. And in the opening scene, you can almost kind of miss it because it gets rearranged with a completely different sound palette. Instead of the kind of creepy that we're kind of used to, it gets redone with a Hobbit kind of flair. Yeah. It has a fiddle. It has kind of a little upbeat thing. And again, Howard Shore said that he did this because he wanted to create this sense of the history has been forgotten. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. People know of the legend of the ring, but for the most part, it's been largely forgotten. And so this history has been lost and now it's been overcolored by the music of the times. Mm -hmm. All right. And again, that's just, <laughs> I geek out about that because that's yeah. a level of detail that you don't see in most movies. And it's why this all turned out so well. Quite right. frankly, right? Because of all those gestures and because of all those things. It's like the peripheral stuff. Yes. That's like kind of... That people 
I think in a lot of cases take for granted. And that's oh, one thing about this score in particular that is, you, you don't need to take, he didn't take this for granted. He was very, you know, very intentional with every little in, thing. Oh, incredibly detail oriented. Mm-hmm. Like he said, his, his goal was to make this soundtrack a masterpiece, which he, of course, succeeded. Congratulations. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, congrats. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's all these little details. And that's really what I'm going to focus on between this episode and the next episode as we go into part two is just like the sheer amount of detail work. So a lot of my overarching lessons for this these two episodes is going to be just the types of details you can throw in. So that mm-hmm. first one I mentioned, a sound palette and a theme can both take on meaning. So he created sound palettes for each of the races and cultures in the story. So he has a sound palette for the hobbits. The hobbit music has its own sound. It has its playing uh, styles. It has its instrumentation, mm-hmm. its articulations and playing techniques that are associated with the sound of the hobbits. Then he has themes that he's written to portray certain ideas, characters, or things. For example, the four different themes he wrote for the ring. The only, I keep saying four because there's four. Mm-hmm. I'm forgetting what the fourth one is, though, <laughs> because I didn't write it down because it wasn't yep. used in this scene. Because uh, I've been using a book called The Music of the Lord of the Rings, which is a huge anthology done by a musicologist who was able to work with Tolkien, uh, not Tolkien, uh, work with Howard Shore while he was making these movies because he knew this was going to be huge and he wanted to document the whole thing. So he talks about four themes. I'm blanking out the fourth one is, but there are four. Take my word for it. <laughs> and... Uh, but yeah, so he has these different themes for the ring and different assets, aspects of the ring. Mm. And because he has sound palettes that have certain meanings and he has themes that have certain meanings, one of the deta- cool things he does with details is he will frequently mix and match sound palettes with themes to create deeper meanings. When you mm-hmm. are layering multiple themes and multiple kind of motifs and ideas on top of each other like that, it combines to create multiple themes. And this one is right. the third movie in the se- trilogy, right? So we have plenty of uses of both the theme and sound palette. We've seen, we've heard all kinds of Hobbit music from the Shire. We've heard this History of the Ring theme kickstart every single movie and get used throughout each movie uh, and become more prominent as they get closer to Mordor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've got their meanings that they've stacked on top of each other and now to mush them together to create a composite kind of, like, complicated kind of meaning. Right. And yeah. he does that so much in the soundtrack. Like in, in my other scenes, we're going to talk about how he has motifs that aren't themes. They're not melodies. They're meant to be accompaniment. So his motifs used as accompaniment throughout in here. And so we'll, we'll save that for later. Mm-hmm. But the idea that he has all these different ideas popping up. And then later on, we hear, like I said, the uh, seduction of the ring starts playing once Deagle discovers the ring. And it plays as Deagle and Smeagol both kind of look at it and get it entranced mm-hmm. uh, because they're both getting pulled in. The ring is seizing its chance to try and hopefully get back to Sauron. Um, and then, of course, we hear the evil of the ring gets uh, played as they start fighting over it. All right? They start fighting and Smeagol kills Deagle. So we, all of this to say, there it's the opening scene, there's so many things happening. Mm-hmm. All right? We have three different themes that are being prominent. We have multiple sound palettes, the sound palettes for the different themes, the sound palettes for the hobbits. We have got so many intricate layers in just one scene. That's what makes these soundtracks so masterful. Not only are the, is the music kind of memorable, not as only is it like lyrical and iconic themes, but the way they get used transforms this into just like one of the greatest soundtracks ever composed. And there are very few people who would argue against that. Right. Uh, Howard Shore might not be as prolific 
in terms of like having as many iconic scores as say like a Hans Zimmer or a John Williams or a Danny Elfman, but no one will argue that he agrees that he he deserves a spot in top like the top tier film composers. Not only for all of his other work, but if if only just for this, because mm-hmm. he's done lots of great stuff. But this is yeah. the hallmark of his mastery. Yeah, most definitely. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. So I have been talking a lot. Do you have <laughs> anything you want to add to this? On this one. You know, I had a bunch of stuff and I just like lost it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's it's kind of weird being back in the being back into the swing of things. I think my my brain might be and it's also late. We're recording yep, it's pretty like, late. Yeah. It, we're, so. we're recording late. We're recording in my bedroom. We don't have the usual setup. It's it's been like a month since we saw the movie. Yeah. We watched this movie intending to record it. And we were super into it. Yes. We were like really ready and ready, you know, just good to go, but it just didn't work oh, out. Oh, there were so many tech issues. We spent like yeah. an hour with like updates and headphones not working and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it was not great. And then that was like the week we had first moved. And so anyway, that's yeah. on a tangent. Lots of context. Yeah. You know, I, I I think, well, I think I'm okay with this one for now. I, I know that there's, there's definitely a lot that I was kind of thinking in terms of like safety and, yep. you know, kind of using those different themes and. Um, you know, it's basically putting things where they need to be really, yeah. I think is the, uh, is the, the primary, the primary take home from this. So, and the, yeah. And, and my primary takeaway is that, and it's going to be, like I said, the kind of running theme for all this is your soundtracks can be insanely intricate. Mm-hmm. You can, you can be like, you can have a Howard Shore kind of level film score where for years people are still diving and still discovering little Easter eggs and little nuggets and little cool things he did. Like Howard Shore has done so many things that he forgot half of them. All right. Like he'll talk about, he'll forget about certain things he did that people point out. He's like, oh yeah, I I forgot. I guess I did do that. Mm -hmm. Because there's so much detail. But the only way you can get to this kind of level of intricacy is by taking the time to study your story. Yes. All right. So the last episode we released on this podcast was actually a solo episode of just me. Uh, talking about how you can study characters for themes. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it because that's a great kind of starter for getting you kickstarted and the thinking about the type of detail you should go into. Because the more detail you go into, the more information you know about your story, the more sources of inspiration you have. Mm-hmm. Right? If you know the character is a hobbit and a main character, that's cool. You can write something with that. But if you know their character development, if you know their arc, their weaknesses, their failures, their triumphs, the way they change and grow... All of that is a source of inspiration for the music. Mm-hmm. All right. And so Howard Shore is just a brilliant example, a shining example of a composer who understands the importance of under, of studying your story. He spent months, months studying, four years writing all three trilogies, which is unheard of. Most movies, you get a matter of weeks, maybe months to mm-hmm. write. And he had four years to work on this, and he spent so much of it just studying the stories. Yeah. All right. Anywho, let's go on to your next scene. Yeah, yeah. So my first scene is going to be when Arwen sees her future Excellent. before she leaves the elves. All right. So before we watch this scene, do you want to explain mm-hmm. for those who are just listening on the phone what happens in this scene? Yeah. So basically, kind of what's going to happen here is Arwen is they're 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 leaving, right? Like yeah. they're they're all leaving Middle Earth. Yeah. And um. She's basically having what is like a future kind of like premonition of what could be if she were to stay with Aragorn and have a kid. So she sees a vision of Aragorn and um, 
and uh, you know her child in in the future and it's it comes it comes to her sort of as like a vision and um super pretty super like it it it's it's interesting it's it's very um it's very uh there's like a lot of nostalgia mm-hmm. for it's it, and that's like something that we've talked about in the past where there's like a lot of nostalgia and like yearning for something mm-hmm. that hasn't happened and or that we want to happen it's like yes. i see this could be and this is what it's like so yes yeah so that's the scene and the important thing to remember is also is she's leaving because her father mm-hmm. had talked about having a vision of only death in her future yeah so he never mentioned that he saw life mm-hmm. all right he didn't yep all right. so <laughs> uh let's watch the let's watch the scene sure Take her by the safest road. A ship lies anchored in the Grey Havens. It waits to carry her across the sea. The last journey of Arwen Undomir. Lady Arwen, we cannot delay. My lady! I wish we could keep going. <laughs> yeah, that one's a nice one. <laughs> it's just there's no right, there's no good place to end here mm-hmm. because the, the the music just keeps going. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I've got a couple things I can say, just like one or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I want to hear what your thoughts are first. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, primarily, like I said, the the emotion here is definitely a it's a yearning. It's a, mm-hmm. it's like a nostalgia for something that hasn't happened. And you know, I, I think that the vocal, like the the female vocals, were really were a really good choice because it kind of like it's almost I don't know. Arwen is Arwen is like a girl, right? So she, you know, a <laughs> <laughs> very astute. So you know, I mean, hey, you put things where they need to be. Um, you know, she's she's looking at her own future, you know, and and it's not her voice. I'm not really saying it to be that, but it's it's kind of like almost an expression of what she's feeling, you know. And so 
how weird would it have been if, like, if it would have been, like, a dude's voice? I mean, that, <laughs> like, thinking about it, it'd be kind of funny. That is that is one way to think of it. Yeah. Because I do know that the female vocalists in the Lord of the Rings trilogy are very frequently used specifically, well, specifically with the elves. Mm-hmm. Yes, but they're used throughout as kind of, um, like, the sound palette is associated greatly with the themes of hope and right. restoration. Mm-hmm. And there are other types of harmony. For example... The use of a boys' choir for the theme of the seduction of the ring is very deliberately used to try and create, well, to call it a bastardized version is a bit strong. Mm-hmm. But that is like it's supposed to try and mimic the purity and hope that the female vocalists offer. Uh, but it's not quite. Mm-hmm. It's a it's 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 a pretender, if you will. It's not the female vocalist, it's not a female choir, it's a boys' children's choir. Mm-hmm. Alright, so which not saying not saying the one is better than the other, but Howard Shore very much was deliberate where he wanted the seduction of the ring to hint at what the ring promises. Right. It was the, it's yeah. the very fine details. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Again, going back to that whole idea of attention mm-hmm. to details and knowing your story. Yeah. But Yeah, and, and with this one it was I I mean, you know, kind of pulling pulling from that like hope and pulling from that like yearning you know she's she's got to look at something that's she want she's looking at a world that she wants to be in and she's not she can't yes. she can't be there and um keeping you know making it kind of like hauntingly beautiful like that i think was a really good choice in terms of like i i couldn't you know there there were a lot of uh well, no, I'm not. I'm not a music theory person, so I'm not going to jump into that. But um, those of you in the, those of you listening who probably know a lot more about that than me, you probably noticed some things as I, as I kind of clinically describe it as haunting and and, yes. and pretty. But you know, there's things that make make that happen. But there's yeah. actually you talked about a very. I liked your description of like a nostalgia for something that hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Do you know there's actually a term for that? What is it? It's called avenoir. Oh. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but Avenoir is technically one of those hoity-toity emotions that you don't really have a name for, but it has a name. Mm-hmm. And it is a nostalgia for a future that hasn't happened yet. Oh, interesting. Which is a very powerful kind of unique emotion that lots of it people is. experience. Yeah. The idea is like a nostalgia, like a, like a yearning for a future that you don't have yet, or like mm-hmm. a goal or a dream that you have that you don't know if you'll have. Um, and that is that is kind of a really cool kind of... Uh, running theme throughout these movies is this idea of what the future holds because it's a big trilogy. It's mm-hmm. a big fantasy-based trilogy um, where it's about driving towards the fate of Middle-earth. Yeah. In fact, I'm going to talk about this later on, but Howard Shore has themes that are written for theoretical endings. Mm. Uh, he calls them the fourth age themes. And each of the different... It's like four different kinds of hap- endings. There's like the ending for Mordor, if they win, the ending for the Shire, the ending for Gondor, the ending for Middle-earth in general. Mm-hmm. So there are all these competing endings, some complementary, some contrasting, yeah. but they're all vying for what they want in the future. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's it's, it's a huge <laughs> kind, of, kind of underlying inspiration for these themes. Again, so much detail. Mm-hmm. So much detail in the lot. soundtrack. Yep. And so... I was going to say, more of a technical standpoint, and I, I'm kicking myself that we can't show it, but if you remember, when you're watching the scene, and when, for those of you who are just listening, you'll notice that the music built up, all right? So there was some dialogue, all right? Arwen is on, like, that sad little trail to, like, leave Middle-earth. They're leaving. She's going to be gone. She's leaving the love of her life, Aragorn, because... She was told if she stays, there's only death in the future. Nothing good's going to happen. He's mm-hmm. going to die. She's going to die. It's all going to happen. 
Um, and it's when she has her own vision on the way back that she has a vision of a child that she realized, hold on, it's not all death. You never told me about having a kid. Mm-hmm. You never told me about having a son. Yeah. All right. And so now she's struck with this choice between pursuing her own immortality in the traditional elfin way of living forever or pursuing a different kind of immortality of having her like her children and mm-hmm. her children's children and having that lineage continue on. And for her, there is no choice. Like, mm-hmm. it's not a hard decision. She immediately knows you didn't. There's life. Like, there's life in my future that you hadn't told me about. Mm-hmm. So she immediately turns tail, runs, leaves that one elf dude kind of pissed. Like, where are you going? Yep. <laughs> and then immediately the music expands. And so if you get the chance, go rewatch this scene. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening is we have what's called an establishing shot. So we know that she's taken off. She's heading back home to go confront Elrond, her father. Mm-hmm. And so we have this great establishing shot of the elfin city of everything, just the surroundings, the trees. We see that the trees have changed color. It's autumn now, and they're starting to drop. A lot of symbolism in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but establishing shots are wonderful things to look for when you're fil- scoring a film. Mm-hmm. Right? Because an establishing shot is a prime opportunity for what's called a technical cue. I've talked about technical cues before, but they're cues that use a primary important theme. All right, An establishing shot is one where the focus of the scene or the shot is the scenery. Mm-hmm. All right, Yeah, you've got a character in there and stuff, but the point is to get as much of the scenery as possible so you can show some kind of information. In this case, she's changed locations. She's gotten back home. Time yeah. has passed. She's about to confront her dad. There's a lot of information that goes with that being said. You don't have to say, and meanwhile, Erwin mm-hmm. has returned. Right. Now let's go see how she confronts her father, the liar. Mm-hmm. Right, no, there's nothing to that going on. We just see, oh, change of scenery, change of location. Wonderful. It's called an establishing shot, and they are prime opportunities for big, beautiful music. All right? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened here. Yeah. All right. So, sorry. I feel like I just monopolized <laughs> your whole scene. No, that's okay. Like I said, it's it's we watched it a while ago, so I probably had a lot more to say when we first watched it. But, True. yeah, no, I, I do I do know that I really wanted to focus on the, the haunting, um, the haunting beauty, if you will, of, of the... Course. Of the vocals, as the, well as the... Avenoir. Of the Avenoir, yes. We yeah. now have a word for it. We do. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do, I I just got to geek out over the whole sound palette thing one more time. Mm-hmm. But it's just such a brilliant idea that the female vocalists throughout the trilogies are used for themes and motifs concerning hope, renewal, and basically just a happy ending all mm-hmm. around. It's like all things good that could happen. That's what these female vocalists are associated with, especially when it comes to the elves. And then in this in the theme written, the seduction of the Rhine theme, the whole thing where it's supposed to be the allure, what makes the theme alluring, is he tries to make it as similar to that as possible without actually being the same thing. Mm-hmm. So a boy's choir sounds very similar in timbre to a female choir, all right? More so than a men's choir does. And their views very commonly. It's a very co- common combination. Young boys' choir and sopranos are a very common combination in choral music. And... It's just such a brilliant idea mm-hmm. that trying, trying to symbolize the same kind of hope, the same allure, the same all things good incarnate, but it's a lie. Mm. It's similar. It sounds like it, it's what it promises, but it's not the same thing. Oh, I'm just, I'm geeking out. There's so much detail in this yeah. soundtrack. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Awesome. Um. So anything else you want to say about this scene? 
About this one? No. No, that's all I really had for this one. Right. So, Excellent. Well, yeah, super pretty. Shall we move on to the next one? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. So my second theme is iconic. All right. It's the lighting of the beacons. All right. So what happened here is Gondor, one of the last kingdoms of men in the world. And it's right on the border of Mordor. They are in trouble. All right. The forces of Mordor are gathering and they are about to lay siege. Now, the steward of Gondor, not the king... Because the line of kings is broken, and this guy's supposed to just be a steward, taking care of the kingdom until the lineage of the kings returns. He's kind of gone crazy. All right? He's gone crazy. He's fallen in love with the power of his station, and he refuses to call for help. He refuses to call for aid from the men of Rohan, the other kingdom of men. Because he knows that the real heir to the throne, Aragorn, is with Rohan. And that if he calls for aid... The true king is going to come to Gondor and probably lay claim to the throne and usher in a new age of peace and awesomeness and what have you. But he doesn't want to do that because that's going to, he's gone mad with power, of course. Um, and so, yeah, he's refusing to do it. But Pippin, one of the hobbits who's there with Gandalf, uh, sneaks in and lights the beacon anyway. All right, so the beacon is this amazing thing where the beacon gets lit. It's a giant pyre of fire. It gets lit off in the distance. Another pyre, they see that that one's lit, so they light theirs. And then it's just this whole kind of game of telephone where giant pyres of flame get erupted so that in a very short amount of time, it travels across Middle Earth and alerts Rohan, Gondor calls for aid. So this is the lighting of the beacon scene. It's an amazing montage. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful epic music. And there is so much going on in the music that I can't wait to discuss. But for now, just sit back and revel, revel, relish. I, I said like revel because I combined relish. Combining the two. Revel and relish. <laughs> but yeah, anyways, revel in the music, relish the music, cherish the music, whatever it is. It's amazing. And if you haven't seen this movie in a long time, get off your butt. Go watch the movie. This is amazing <laughs> stuff. All right, let's listen to it.
beacons are lit! Gun knuckles for eight! And Rohan will answer. Muster the Rohirrim! This is such an amazing scene. All right, I geek out over every time. If you've seen the movies, you know why. It's just, it's amazing. All right, there's mm -hmm. so much going on here. And there's a lot to unpack in the music. And unfortunately, we're limited because of the format. This is a podcast. I don't, I can't like show people. I don't have, whatever, whatever. There's, we're limited. But one thing I want to talk about is a motif that moves all over the place in this scene, right? It's in the background, in the strings, it comes in at the brass, a bunch of variations left and right. But the core of this entire piece is a single motif and it has a name, all right? It's mm -hmm. called the weakness and redemption motif. All right, I'm gonna play a very basic kind of version on the piano real quick. But the motif, the motif consists of just four rising notes. Mm -hmm. All right, so it's this super simple idea. It's not a full theme, it's just a motif. And we hear this basic idea all over the place in the strings, it's happening in the brass, it's happening in all kinds of areas in the music, accompaniment and foreground alike. And what's really cool is this motif, like I said, it's not a full theme, but it represents one of the core themes of the story. And like the name suggests it's a it's a story about weakness and rising from the weakness mm. and being redeemed from your weakness and this is something that help happens on so many different levels in the story right? so we we see it in the elves the elves were like the former guardians and caretakers of middle earth and now they're leaving mm -hmm. because they're like all right we've seen the peak of our civilization come and go we're going to dip all right we're going to get out of here yeah but Despite that weakness, before, despite abandoning their post, before they leave, they reforge Anduil and give it to Aragorn and convince him to rise to his position as a leader, to convince him to finally step up and be who he was meant to be. We see Gondor. Was Gondor was like the one of the kingdoms of men. It was a huge, prominent kingdom, and it's fallen into disrepair. Mm. It's kind of become a shadow of its former glory. But at the end, it gets reinstated in all of its former glory. Even Gollum. Gollum is some kind of variation of this weakness redemption kind mm. of thing. I mean, he has he, he ultimately gets corrupted by the ring, uh, but he does play a role in destroying the ring, whether willing or not. All right, he still has a part to play in the ultimate destruction of the ring. So this, yeah. th there are a bunch of other examples, but there's an underlying kind of theme to the story, almost a moral of the story, if you will, of this idea of redemption after mm -hmm. the fall. All right, and so because that's an underlying theme, what Howard Shore does is he creates a motif, not a full theme, but a motif, something that he can weave in and out of the other themes, mm -hmm. something he can use in accompaniment or a baseline or just in the background somewhere as he layers different themes with it. And this is one of them. He has multiple themes based off multiple kind of morals to the story. Yeah. And it's it's brilliant. It's a, such a simple, elegant solution. All right. If he has an idea that's running throughout the background of the entire story, rather than make a theme that has to be in the foreground, just come up with a motif. Come up with a musical idea that by design 
stays in the background. A simple motif like this, a four note rising figure that can be placed in like rhythmic strings, it can be placed in a bass line, it can be placed in all kinds of background roles in your music and help kind of represent these ideas. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because it's just, it's just kind of an example of such a great idea as film scoring. We kind of get lost in this idea of melodies and themes, mm. but themes don't have to be lyrical in nature. Anything can be a theme. Anything as long as it's reused and paired with a specific idea can be a theme. Right. Melodies are a fantastic option because they're memorable. They stick out in the foreground. A melody is meant to be heard. Mm -hmm. All right. So having themes that are meant to be heard, like character themes world themes, stuff like that. We've talked about sound palettes. Sound palettes, the types of instruments you use and the type of style that they're played in, that can take on meaning. For example, mm -hmm. the, every single race in this story has their own sound palette. The elves have a sound palette. The orcs have a sound palette. The, the hobbits do. The wizards do. The men do, like the world of men or whatever. Yeah. They've got so many sound palettes, each associated with different cultures within the story. And... So you've got melodies, you've got, uh, you've got uh, sound palettes. You can do motifs like this, short little ideas, and use them in the background. You can have intervals. Intervals can take on meaning. Uh, rhythmic ideas can take on meaning. Any little element that you can possibly come up with with music can be given meaning. The only thing you need to do is be deliberate with how you use it. Mm -hmm. All right, come up with something that you want to represent musically, something about the story and then ask yourself, is this something that I want to be in the foreground? Something I want to be prominent? Right. If so, you probably want it to be either A, a sound palette, or B, a full-on theme. All right, something that can stick out, be noticeable. Mm -hmm. Or is this something where it's almost like an Easter egg, where you want to keep it in the background and like save it? It'll still have an impact, but you want to save it for like the real music nerds. Mm -hmm. All right, where you can say like, like I said, Howard Shore went, moved into this and he's has been very vocal that his goal was to make this a masterpiece that he wanted the Lord of the Rings to have a fitting trilogy of its own mm -hmm. to go with the trilogy, not just yeah. the three books, but he wanted it to be three masterpieces, the books, the movies, and the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And so to create a masterpiece, he needed this level of detail. And again, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but the only way you can achieve this level of detail in your score is to do something like Howard Shore and spend the time to know the story. All right, you have to understand the story of your film better than a Reddit super nerd. All right, or super fan, I should say. Um, you have to understand the characters, their motives, their backstory. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all nerded out about something, right? Right. And you want to be the nerd for your own story. You want to understand every little detail, every little thing that no one else knows. Because having that level of understanding, having that level of detail is what's going to allow you to have so many ideas, mm -hmm. right? You wouldn't be able to come up with this idea of having a motif to represent the weakness and redemption arcs found all throughout the story. Yeah. If you hadn't, like, if you hadn't done deep dive and realized, oh, there is this arc of weakness and redemption. We see it with the elves. We see it with the. We see it with Gondor. We see it with the men of Rohan. We see it with Gollum. We see it. All over the place, mm -hmm. right? But you have to do that deep dive in the first place. And I'm sorry, I've been talking a lot, but I just... Okay. It's a podcast. I'm geeking out That's about what we this, do. <laughs> right? So do, do you have anything you want to add to this? Yeah, I think the thing that um, really stood out to me and, and, you know, kind of similar to the, you know, kind of the details and paying attention to those fine details is 
I don't know. For me, the thing that the things that I always kind of see are, you know, like I, I'm coming at it from a, from a um, like a sensory experience kind of like place. I don't know if Howard Shore did that when he was writing. <laughs> he maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But um, for me, I'm looking at the space, right? Mm-hmm. I'm looking at the, you know, the the pl- the space that the music occupies and we've talked before about like how you can create like really ethereal scenes with leaving the space kind of open and keeping it you know kind of letting things go but in this there's a lot of movement there's a lot of stuff happening the space is a lot fuller you know mm-hmm. even though there's like majestic mountainsides and things like that that you're seeing like just huge scenes you know like kind of drone shots almost yeah. we're filling the space up with you know with a lot more stuff basically yes. is what is kind of what's go- is what I kind of noticed here and I really liked it because um I think it's kind of a nice little compare and contrast to sort of what we're used to seeing which is like with the Ghibli films or with yep. you know with like uh with things that are kind of a little more like I said ethereal where there's like a lot of kind of like wonder it's like nope there's no wondering here there's a lot of space we're fill Oop, there's a lot of space we're filling it and you know we're we're filling it with because th- we know exactly what's happening. Like we were, yes. maybe that's actually a, a pretty cool little detail too. We know what's happening, yeah. So we don't have to like wonder. We're just gonna put all sorts of predictable patterns and things in there, fill it up, and make it work. Exactly, and it's like because well, right before the scene, right before the big kind of montage happens, mm-hmm. um, Gandalf says like. And so hope is kindled. Right. All right. This is a huge moment. The people of Gondor know that they are screwed. Mm-hmm. All right. The army of Mordor is coming at them, and their leader, the steward of Gondor, has gone mad and power crazy, and he's refusing to send for aid. Because mm-hmm. he's like, no, if I send for aid, I'm going to lose, like, you're going to bring the true king. I'm going to lose my power. And they're all going, you're mad. If you don't send for help, you're all going to die. So either way, you're losing your power. Why don't mm-hmm. you just do And so, but the people are loyal to the leader. And so he's right. not sending for help. And so then when Gandalf and uh, Pippin, light the beacons and it sends off then suddenly everyone's like oh thank god this is amazing all right mm-hmm. now we got now we at least know that there should be reinforcements so we can at least hope that there will be reinforcements they yeah. now have hope and that's such a big emotion and uh earlier i was talking about uh like technical cues and this is another great example this is both an establishing shot where like the focus is on the setting we're seeing the beacons light we're traveling all across middle earth mm-hmm. seeing this awesome kind of event unfold, unfold but it's also a montage all right so a montage meaning a long space of time condensed into a shorter kind of scene yeah both of those are prime opportunities for big music it's just mm-hmm. thematic statements because there's no dialogue right there's just images and music mm-hmm. so there's all things that kind of go on and when you're trying to figure this out like going from an emotion side, we're trying to figure out how to fill this space. You got to think about the emotions you want to evoke in your audience, yep. right? Because this is a big moment. There's going to be, the music is going to be important. And so you want to think, all right, what emotional impact do I want to have on my audience? And for me personally, I like to focus on three things. All right. So the size movement and valence, all right. Mm-hmm. Valence being how bright or dark do I want this emotion to feel? All right. Obviously hope is rekindled you want this to be a nice kind of big hopeful moment so it's brighter and it's big and it's heroic all right and there's that rising action the building of hope most of the accompaniment is like a rising action that's called a gesture by the way a musical Mm -hmm. gesture is just a musical metaphor 
All right, yeah. so you get an idea. It's like, all right, so hope is rising, rising. How do I portray rising with music? Oh, just let's do some upward scales, upward runs. All right, so that's a gesture. Any kind of idea you get like that. Mm-hmm. And then after valence, I decide how bright or dark do I want it. And that's oftentimes going to be impacted by the instrument choice and the harmony choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I will decide on things like size. How big do I want? How overwhelming right. do I want this emotion to feel? This is a big moment, right? Right, yeah, we it's a want, turning point. Exactly, it's a turning yeah. point. We want the... We want the audience to feel hope or right? mm-hmm. we want to feel like thank goodness all right we were like we were like we had no hope before now we have hope that's pretty overwhelming so you're gonna want some big size mm-hmm. all right which again is what howard Shore does and then movement meaning how energizing do you want this emotion to be all right do you want it to be draining or energizing this is it's hope all right hope has been rekindled you want to build energy you want people to feel like yes now we can fight and we can know that you know we have hope that it's not all a lost cause anyway right all right and there's a lot going on in this because I mentioned there's a, there's other kind of themes as well, um, but uh, I mean I don't want to spend too much time on this scene. But so that I guess that's kind of what. So if you want to, we'll stop there in terms of like the stuff I want to talk about with this scene. I had other stuff, but we should probably keep moving. <laughs> um, but yeah, so just kind of recap: fill that space, figure mm-hmm. out what emotion you want your audience to feel. Those three elements: size, movement, and valence. And right. actually, I'd be I'd be interested in your opinion on that. Mm-hmm. do you have anything you would add or anything that you like honestly okay this is my ego speaking alright I want you to tell me I'm brilliant <laughs> <laughs> tell me I'm brilliant this model of emotion in ter- all in terms of the model of emotions but just um, like energy and anything yeah. well okay yeah put me on the spot why don't you um, <laughs> I mean yeah in terms of so well, you gotta remember what you're what you're looking at it through yeah. right like you're looking at it through the f- through the filter of like music of course are, are you asking like are you asking does the tool or does the model apply to like like if we were to put it into like my field? Does it like describe no, 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 emotions? No, I know because I know the because it's built off the CMA, the, the yeah. uh, circumflex model of effect. I know that's kind of uh, more. Uh, that's more kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not and controversial. Controversial. Some people like it. Some people don't. It's built for research. Is that yeah. so? There's anything all kinds with of, yeah. But, anything in psychology is. I'm thinking so. <laughs> Again, I was joking about like telling me I'm brilliant. Of course, right. you can if you want. But no, the idea is we like, already I, know that. Right? Yeah, of course, I'm brilliant. <laughs> yeah, but no, the, what I'm interested in is more about how do you approach emotions in music? Because you're a composer as well. You write music. So mm. what what kind of thing? I don't mean to put you on the spot, <laughs> but like yeah, I'm but, interested. Like, how do you like but, go about it? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Very amateur, I'll say. Very amateur. I'm not. You know, I'm 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 kind of a weird. Yeah. Example of like somebody who, because I've, I've, I've been a classically trained musician actually longer than Steve, a lot longer than oh, Steve. Much longer than Which me. is hilarious because I don't know that I, I don't know that I have the same level of what, maybe like performance wise, that's kind of where I fall. But in terms of yeah. composition, I am like not even in the same ballpark. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, I, it, I, it's hard for me because I feel like I'm going to give the answer that everybody hates. And that's like, I just have an intuition about certain things. Right. No, and, that's that's very, that's very natural. Yeah, and 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 what I would say with that, you know, what I would say with that is to to not shy away from your intuition. No, and no. and what I'm talking about intuition, I'm talking about like there's a thing you can feel when you're like listening to something and you're like that's not right. Yep. Or you're like that's perfect. Oh, and that is so that is so crucial for film scoring. All right? Yeah. Cuz that's there's no correct way. There's no one correct way to score any scene. Yeah. But there are wrong ways. 
There's wrong ways. All right. And yeah. the, the wrong way, and it's that instinct. That's important mm-hmm. to be able to watch a scene, listen to the music, and go, oh, that doesn't fit. Right. And most people can do it. It's one of those intangibles. You can recognize when music doesn't fit. It's harder to explain why. Mm-hmm. And I'm really glad that you brought that idea of instinct because that is important. Yeah. So in my channel and my lessons, I focus a lot on like models and structures and stuff. And those are important. Mm-hmm. But I also don't always use them. All right. So right. when I teach emotions, I teach like these very numerically heavy things like rating the energy on a scale of one to five, mm-hmm. uh, rating the valence on a scale of one to five and all these kind of tools for this. Yeah. And I'm very transparent in my class that, yeah, this is meant to at the beginning help you get an idea of how to navigate these ideas right how to be very specific and dial in the exact sound you want but the ultimate goal is to do away with that to no longer need these worksheets that i've put together no longer need these numbers so that it just comes instinctively Mm -hmm. where you can just think oh i just need to make this darker and then you go to your default settings because everybody has default settings right they're just the decisions you make when you go to a keyboard if you play triads then that's a default setting. If you play seventh chords by default, that's a default setting. Mm-hmm. Everybody has kind of their factory settings of what they go to, and that's called your style. Yes. That's literally all your style exactly. is. Your style is just your default settings. It's whatever your default setting is. And yeah, and and I think the I think kind of I think maybe a more tangible thing that I can sort of offer is is kind of like what I say, this is kind of my broken record. Just make it make sense. Of I course. mean you know, like if you if if you're writing, see the nice thing about writing for film is like you already have a lot of inspiration just oh, yeah. like set for you. Yep. See, so like you don't have to like fabricate something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you've already got like a lot to work with right yeah, out of the right? gate. So I mean, you know, if we're talking in terms of like film, you know, it, keep it keeping it kind of kind of streamlined there just for simplicity. You know, what is your default setting? In experiencing whatever whatever material you have before you you know write the music, maybe maybe the director gives you a screening, maybe the director lets you you know if it's like a play or something you can watch and you can kind of see maybe there's like something about like the actors or there's something about the way they portray the characters that like you have a feeling about you know you as a composer you're you have two sides to your brain you have a left brain you have a right brain. You have, you know, your left brain, it, which is kind of hilarious, I feel like. And again, rein me in if this is too much. But um, <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of composers are really left-brained, like yeah. super left-brained, like logical kind of like, you know, like mathematical almost, yeah. which is kind of funny because music is by definition. I mean, it's both. Like, it's not yeah. just like, you know, it's not just yep. one or the other. Yep. The but, left side is like the logical, right side is the artistic, right? Right side, it's like your intuition, your artistic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, yeah, like your yeah. creativity. And I mean, and you need both. Yeah. You need both in oh, order say, for it to as, work. Especially as a media composer, you definitely need both. The left side yeah. of the brain keeps you in the job. But he, I, it, Right. Yeah. But here's the thing. You can be art. So, Howard Shore... Actually, this is a very left-brained score, if you think oh, about yeah. it, because very of much. how much there is to it. So there can be art in just picking oh. one or the other. It, you know, there can be, like, there can be something to that. Yes. You know, but it has to be, there ha- There has to be an intention. Yes. You can't, because, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the brain processes, because you're still technically using, like, both sides. But, yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying, like, isolate one side no, or no, the no, other no, no, side. No. Don't do that. That's That will hurt you. And, um, you know, in more ways than not. But, uh, you know, but it, it's one of those things where, like, if that's a creative decision to just look at something, like, look at Bach. Bach yeah. was the same way. Like, everything was, like, super mathematical and, like, you know, it, any other, you know, number of composers that you can think of throughout history where it, it all comes down to that process. It comes down to your process. You are inputting yourself 
excuse me, you are inputting yourself into the sound. Oh, very much. And that's why you got to be open to what it comes out as. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. I hope that was helpful. I, I, I the, the, this is I stuff so. that I, I explore with people every day. So for me, I can just kind of like ramble about it. No, I get it. I get it. I, I think <laughs> and it comes very is, intuitively to me, but well, this, incru- this is crucial. Like being in touch with your intuition is crucial. Yeah. Like I said, in my class where I teach emotions and music, there is that super analytical side. All right. There is the like figure out the valence size and movement mm-hmm. of the emotion and then mimic that in the music. Yeah. And that gets very analytical. All right, yes. I have like sliding scales. I have like descriptions of how to meet each sliding scale. We go very, very like left-brained approach to it. Mm-hmm. But there's also this concept of gesture, which is all right brain. All right, yeah. you are watching the scene. You're just saying, okay, what ideas do I have? I'm telling like, all right, if you were like studying an emotion and you think, oh, I just got the idea the trumpet would be good for this melody. Do it. All right. That's your instinct. All mm-hmm. right. Stick to your instinct. That's Rock important yeah. because the the valence size and movement are great for setting the mood, mm-hmm. but the gesture is what brings the emotion across. Yes. And the whole point, because I do a lot of stuff where it's very left brained. That's how, because I, I don't consider myself a particularly talented musician. Yeah. Well, and it's how, yeah. I mean, at a very base level, it's how humans communicate. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you have to, we, we learn things that way from when you're communicating information, we learn it through the left brain, but I'm not going to. No, is that, yeah. And, but like my whole goal is because there was one back when I was in grad school, before I was doing any kind of the music stuff, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I had an audiobook about the philosophy of Bruce Lee because he was apparently a philosopher as well. Yeah. And one thing that stuck out to me more than anything else in that book was Bruce Lee's view on learning. Mm-hmm. And he said that there are three stages to learning. The first stage is pure instinct. It's like if you think about a martial artist, if they have zero training, zero learning, they're just going to fight based off instinct, right? They're going to slap, they're going to scratch, they're going to bite, they're going to do whatever just without thinking. Mm-hmm. No thought goes into it, they just react. Yeah. It's like step two is when you start studying and you start learning and you get all of these tools. You get all this instruction. So you find out how to do a roundhouse kick. You find out how mm-hmm. to do a hook kick. You figure out how to do all these different movements, right? right? Yeah. And because of that, your reaction time is stunted, all right? You are no longer going out of instinct you are going out of like highly overthinking mm-hmm. like and because of that i mean you're getting better at technique but you're slower you're stunted you're overweighed with like all this overthinking yeah so step three is actually a return to that first stage where mm-hmm. everything is instinct where you don't think you just react right but your default settings have changed mm-hmm. all right because of your training because of your understanding what comes naturally what comes instinctively instead of Scratching is now a roundhouse to the cake, a roundhouse kick to the face kind yep. of thing. All right, like exactly. doing all kinds of cool stuff because you've got all this training. Your default settings have changed, and that's mm-hmm. always kind of the approach that I've taken with music. That kind of model has been very impactful for me. Where I thought when I first started with music, I was doing everything that came instinctive, mm-hmm. like whatever came, whatever came in my head, I was just going to do that. Whatever yeah. came to my fingers on the keyboard, that's what I was going to do. Very instinctive. And I wasn't at a place where I felt I was good enough or that I wanted to be. I wasn't where I wanted to be. And so I spent several years studying and training and practicing and practicing, drilling all of this music theory, all of these ideas, all these models and strategies, designing my own strategies and tools and approaches to composing and getting very analytical with it, getting mm-hmm. very left brained with it. Yep. And it's almost in, it's only in like the last year or so that I've started to see, I can actually feel myself return, getting to that third stage mm-hmm. where I'm no longer having to pull out my worksheets or my processes. I have a folder in Google Docs called yeah. My Composing Processes. Oh, I've yeah. got a folder. Well, I, I do too. Right? <laughs> i got a file on my process for chord progressions. I've got a pro- file for my orchestration process, melody writing, structuring, and they're useful. Mm-hmm. If I have writer's block or I just don't want to write, 
I have those processes that process. written down and yeah. I follow it and it gets me moving. Right. All right. But yeah. I found that a lot of those, I haven't had to open them in like a year. Yeah. Because I've internalized. Because you get that intuition. Yes, yeah. exactly. My in, my default settings have changed. And now mm-hmm. I have all of these tools at my disposal that come instinctively. So now that I get more and more just going to what comes instinctively, just doing what feels right with my music. Mm-hmm. But the what comes right is way more intricate, much more skilled than what was. Yeah. Because now I have the benefit of all these years of training and uh, effort and right. instinct and yeah. bundling it all together. It, it's it's very cyclical. It's yes. very cyclical. And and you find that once you close that loop of like, okay, I've got an intuition or I've got like the left, you start, depending on like where you start. For me, it's kind of funny that we're having this conversation because I feel like we both started on yep. opposite sides of the spectrum where like you started very like I'm going to learn all of the technicalities yep. and I'm just like just feel it man just go right? for it you know <laughs> well, and, it, and yeah. then we both kind of close the loop and you, I mean you're much farther along in this than I am even I feel like I'm still kind of like learning the left brain side like the, the being more analytical and like dragging and dropping things yeah. and being a little more intentional that way but like once you once you close that loop like you you just keep running it you just oh, keep running that same loop and I mean you're gonna you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna make some beautiful music, man. Oh, it's beautiful. And I, I love that you describe it as a loop because it really mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Right? There's no there's no end point to education. There's no mm-hmm. end point to training. You're constantly enhancing your intuition, but then also you know learning your learning new skills. Yeah. Right. And there's this beautiful story. I forgot. I wish I knew who it was, but there was a famous like world class cellist or pianist or some musician in his 90s, world renowned musician, classical musician, and he still practiced like three hours every day. And they asked, "Why do you still practice?" And he says. Because I think I'm getting better. Because I think I might like, get better. Because there's, yeah, there's no, I remember that. There's no end point mm-hmm. like for education. This journey of like training, there is no destination. Right. It's a loop. All right. You start off with your default settings. You train. You get better at something, mm-hmm. and then you return to instinct. Because now you have more. Yeah. Now you're better. Now you have more tools available to you. Exactly. And then yeah. you find new tools. Mm-hmm. You find something else. Like for me, I'm getting, I'm really getting into electronic music. I am mm-hmm. studying and practicing synth making. So like, that's, uh, it's absorbing a lot of my time because I want to get better. It's gonna be good for our eight bit album. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm very excited for that one. Yeah, right. but um, oh, we've, we've gotten off rail. We've gotten off rail here. Yep. Uh, so, but I, but I think yeah. the conversation has honestly been really good because yes, this is the type of stuff that I feel like we, as you know, you know, we're we're, we're trained. We're, we're coming from two different ish you know perspectives and i feel like this honestly of all the conversations we've had is probably one of the more um one of the more useful in terms of like how we can really apply a lot of what i do and a lot of what you do and kind of put them together to like really to like i don't want to say optimize but like i mean maybe optimize in a way you know like to understand and then continue to grow and to continue to give you know composers like a really unique view on like what we do exactly you know yeah and every composer is different you and i are like perfect examples of that yeah. i mean like you mentioned you have had significantly more musical training than i ever did mm-hmm. it's like well maybe not at this point. Well, performance but, yeah, longer longer like yeah, perf- like instrumental performance because yeah, you started piano lessons at like what four four years old oh yeah, yeah. and i had like <laughs> maybe three months of piano in <laughs> yeah. first grade i remember because we were friends i was like i told you i play piano i want to play piano yep <laughs> but i took some lessons i was so happy with it but then we had to stop that was like the extent of my musical training i did band in school mm-hmm. but i didn't have any training and so i've always so like, I've always admired that music comes naturally to you. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of musicians I know where it just comes naturally in to them. In some I, ways. I love music. And for me, I thought, like, you know what? I've got some talent, but I've never viewed myself as, like, a born composer. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've never really had, 
like this feeling where music comes naturally to me. Yeah. And so what I do is like what I do have a talent for is teaching. I was like, at least I like to think I have a talent. And you have a much better talent for practicing than I ever did. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm jealous of that because I feel like I... It's my only defense. Stalled myself a lot of ways. <laughs> it's it's my only defense is yep. being able to practice a lot. Yep. And so yep. that's like, you don't need to, you don't need to be a prodigy. You don't need to have like you crazy skill as a play. Right. Because it can be learned. Mm-hmm. It can be developed. It can be trained just like anything else. Right. And I, yeah, I, believe me guys, I've worked with a lot of quote unquote prodigies, you know. Oh, everybody and, thinks they're a prodigy. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, I was one. I thought I was. Like I, it, my whole... <laughs> Family, everybody was telling me that, you know, oh my gosh, you could go do these things. And maybe if maybe if I would have stuck with it, maybe I could have. Who knows? Yep. But like I honestly did not have the emotional maturity to do that. But yep. um, you know, in terms of so for all intents and purposes, it was never gonna happen. But um, you know, in, in terms of uh in terms of people where, you know, where you get wrapped up in that narrative, like that's really and that's that's what happened. I mean, if I could get a vulnerable for a second, that's what happened. Yeah. I like lost I mean, there was a lot of other things that, like, happened, but I lost a lot of, like, I lost a lot of my musicality for a very, I mean, that's, I know I'm probably not using that word, but I I lost a lot of, like, my, my relationship with music was very bad. You lost your passion? For a long time. It wasn't that I lost my passion. It was that I felt, I felt so alienated by people who were, like, like very deep into like and this is performance too like oh, yeah. i don't i'm sure composition is different but like in performance it's like that a man you think no oh, well maybe, maybe lots not. of gatekeeping lots of mm, that's what you do yeah yeah, yeah. Shame. i yeah i i won't name names or anything but you know because there's <laughs> there's a few but um you know or, and I, I won't even mention stories just because i you know it's okay but uh you know it's in the past now i don't, I don't hold it against anybody but uh you know it's it, there's just this very big push it, it, it was a it pushed me away like i felt like my own field was kind of pushing me away and yeah. i mean for better or for worse it pushed me into where i'm at now and exactly. i think that that's good and yeah. honestly my it's one of those things where you know know your musical superpowers as well because everybody yes. has a musical superpower if, you, if you're talking about like maintaining your relationship with your music mine was that like it takes me a week max to get back to where i was so i'm i'm very very thankful and blessed that i you know i don't feel like i ever truly like lost mm-hmm. all of I, all that i gained i it for me it's kind of like it would just take like a little bit to oh, come yeah. back and everybody i love that everybody does have a musical superpower yeah. it's not always however related to music it might so, not be like yeah. the, one of the many definitions of creativity is the ability to take two seemingly unrelated things mm-hmm. and find a way to connect them exactly and everyone everyone has something that they love other than music yeah so i mean like you and i we both really enjoy strength training mm-hmm. all right and strength training, the model for training... It's the same as music. It's the same for music. That's yeah. how I practice. All mm-hmm. right? I pick... I start I, with this, an assessment. Where am I now? What's my skill level? Yeah. I pick my goal. What do I want to do that I can't do? And then I put together a plan. How do I bridge that gap? That's how I practice. Exactly. Like, yeah. And then my ba- like my background in psych. Six years of my life dedicated mm-hmm. to being a therapist that never yep. panned out. Yeah. I learned hey, a lot. Better than, I find 25 years, better than 25 years of being a pianist. <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> Just be glad that you only lost six. True, very true, very true. But well, uh, you didn't lose six, and I didn't. No, lose no, no, no. That's exactly. I didn't lose six, but everyone <laughs> right. has something. Like there's, uh, there's a very good like composer, very inspiring composer on Instagram. Her name is Cheska Navarro, mm-hmm. and she has spent years working in a lab. Like her background was in a scientific research lab. Mm-hmm. All right, and so that's her superpower. She says she like loves 
graphs. She loves research. She loves tracking things and like having all this skill set that she got from working in a lab mm-hmm. that she now applies towards her music career. Right. Yeah. Everybody got some. Some composers love storytelling. Some composers love video games. Some what well, like writing, walking, anything. Anything that you love, if you want to find your musical superpower, if you don't know what it is, I just say spend some time finding out how do you bridge the gap between all of your passions. Mm -hmm. Because that's what makes you unique. Yeah. All right. Now we have gotten very off track. Yeah. Well, and and again, I think that the off track is good. And I just want to, and I just want to, you know, the person to the person that's doubting themselves. I don't have a musical superpower. I'm going to go therapist mode for a second. Yes, you do. Everything you have, everything you need, you have. You just got to find it. Like, seriously, you know, and, and that's that's it sounds cliche. And, and you know, the reason it sounds cliche is because it's true and because yes. we all know this deep down and you do, too. And, you know, from one to another, from one person who who lost it and who got it back to another, you know, you you can do it. And, and you know, you just got to you just got to practice. You just got to keep going to it. So, amen. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we that was, you know, long story short, just do karate. Um, lift weights. <laughs> Get out of the house sometimes. It's good for you. <laughs> Do something. Like, yeah, it's like if you want a homework assignment, make a list of all the things you love other than music. If yep. It's your family, your pet. It's another hobby. Maybe you like 3D printing. Maybe you like reading manga or watching anime. Find yep. something. There's always something. Make a list. I am a big fan of lists. Mm-hmm. List as many different skill sets or ideas or even beliefs that you get from your other happy, uh, hobbies and passions mm-hmm. and see, uh, just brainstorm. How can you combine them and figure out what your musical superpower is? I love that. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's do another scene, shall we? Let's do another scene. My scene is going to be Gandalf quelling off the Nazgul Ooh. at Minas Tirith. Bellissimo. So, very excited about this one. Uh, let me reference my notes real quick just yep. to see what I'm going to have us look for. Man, I really like the idea of space, don't I? So there's lots of space to fill here, <laughs> apparently. Um, remind, remember, I, I wrote this about a month ago, so I'm doing my yeah. best. Um, yeah, so, you know, lots of space. It, it's a very otherworldly kind of... Sa- oh, okay, yeah, now the scene's in my head. It's a very otherworldly, you know, kind of sound. Um, sort of horrifying, it's a bit horrifying. Um, you know, again, I'm we we're, we're going to have to kind of we're going to have to kind of watch it and roll with it, but yep. um, you know, kind of just notice notice that space. Notice um notice kind of the mood. Notice your own, you know, we're talking about intuition. Notice what your intuition says about, you know, kind of this interaction between Gandalf and the Nazgûl. Like yep. what comes up for you? So since we're not showing the clip, because YouTube does not like our podcast, mm-hmm. and we're just going to be listening to it, describe that space a bit. Describe the scene, what's happening, where are they, who are the characters? Yeah, yeah. So the next scene is going to be uh, in the field. I'm blanking on a lot of the names. but um, So in the field, right after, uh, basically right after Faramir's whole company kind of got overtaken by the uh overtaken by the orcs in that one little town oh osgiliath yeah osgiliath yep so they got so they get overtaken there they're running back to minas tirith they're really trying to they're really trying to get back and um the uh the nazgul and the fell beasts ended up intercepting them on the path there and gandalf has this moment where he's able to quell them and that oh, that yeah, that little gonna, transformation is going to be pretty cool. Yeah. Think of it as like taking you out of the world. It's taking you out of what is happening currently, right? So beyond, you know, go beyond the generic like, oh, the hero's here, and like he's gonna like the light is gonna overtake the dark. 
Um, you know, think of it in terms of like, this is, this is like a new, this is like another world colliding with, with the one that we see. I love that. I've got some stuff that I'd like to say about that too. Mm -hmm. Uh, but let's watch the scene first. So we're going to start off at the fall of Osgiliath. Mm -hmm. So like the orc commander shows up, uh, they've successfully pushed Faramir's men out. Now we'll watch from that point on to the scene where they're fleeing Osgiliath and Gandalf has to save them. Yep, All that right. works. Sounds good. The age of men is over. The time of the orc has come. Scenes. This is so good. <laughs> All right. So, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I have a lot. I well, by a lot, I mean I have an average amount. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, to kind of start the theme of space, right? So, there's yeah. there's definitely a lot of it to fill up, and you know, big field, lots of people fighting. Oh, it's a big open it, space. It, it's yeah. it's weird because like it feels full, but when when Gandalf comes in, it it almost like empties a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of what it felt like to me. Like he, but and so that's kind of where I wanted to, you know, where I wanted everyone to focus on, sort of like the otherworldliness of this, is because think of the story of who the Nazgul are to these guys. Mm-hmm. Like this is like legends, you know? Oh yeah, it's like childhood Baba Yaga, yeah, La Yarona. Yeah, like things that, like, we don't know if they're actually, like, real. Like, we just, you know, like, we're just kind of, like, assuming, you know, like, this is like a, these are like stories. These are like things out of, like, a story. And they're fighting them, you know, like, in the field. And Gandalf is as well. Gandalf, Mm -hmm. the White Rider, that, you know, they have, you know, a bunch of different names for him. And, you know, so his otherworldliness had to kind of come and clash with the otherworldliness that they were dealing with, right? So, like, it was almost like two legends it would be, it's sort of be like if you're getting chased down by a bunch of stormtroopers, then Harry Potter comes out of nowhere and yeah. saves you. <laughs> and saves you, and it's, yeah, it's like, it's super, super weird. So, like, that really, I think, kind of just, I think that really kind of shows just how, like, heavy, or I, I feel like the, uh, like, the particularly the sound palette really kind of showed just how heavy, um, or, like, oh, yeah. the, the choices, basically, like, the sound, like, the instrumentation choices. Oh, definitely, because that's that's very much by design. Mm-hmm. All right, so first I do want to say something about, like, the open space, because that is, that is a very, because I love that mo- moment that you, like, that thing you said 
about suddenly it feels empty because it does. Yeah, like in it the doesn't feel scene, full. Yeah. yeah, in the previous scene we had like the battle for Asgiliath. Mm-hmm. All right, and so the orcs are fighting against the men of Gondor. They're fighting. They're trying to maintain that city, uh, that strategic area, and they're overrun. So the, there's the previous scene. You see that they're surrounded by buildings. They're surrounded by rubble, mm-hmm. like ruins of the city. It's very tight quarters all right you, there's not a lot of space you're stuck running between spaces there's this battle uh, like fighting and then the nazgul arrive on their mm-hmm. feldbeasts and they're just like attacking and so then they realize all right we can't keep the city we need to make a run for it let's try to make it to minas Tirith. Mm-hmm. the next scene it's a wide open field yeah and so now everything that felt so crowded so um so like tight-knit fighting quarters kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You're now in a giant field and there are mountains in the background. And like you said, it feels empty because now all of these men who are fleeing are just being picked off. All right? right. And so you talked about, like they're in open space, there's nowhere to take cover and the fell beasts are just making light work of them. And you talked about the collab, like the like the clash of worlds and that's exactly what happens. This is one of the beautiful uses of sound palettes. Mm-hmm. So the music playing as they're being picked off by these mythical beasts that most of them probably didn't believe was real anymore. Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, they did. Okay, never mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's another topic. Right. But uh, <laughs> no, because the music playing is called the evil of Mordor or mm-hmm. something along those lines. And it's a sound palette associated with the orcs. Lots of clanging metal, lots of heavy low brass, lots of strange rhythms. There's a lot mm-hmm. of this kind of heavy sound of the orcs happening, like associated with Mordor. Because, I mean, the orc commander just said that the age of men is over. Now it's the age of the orc. And we have this yeah. overwhelming music completely associated in melody, harmony, and sound palette with Mordor mm-hmm. and the orcs. And then Gandalf shows up and the music is overrun yep. with a theme called the White Rider. It's pushed out. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It gets mm-hmm. pushed out by the scene of the White Rider. Then the White Rider is a theme that's been used throughout all three movies and it's mm-hmm. associated with the fellowship. It's kind of like the uh, nature's reclamation because there's another theme called nature's reclamation. I think we talked about. Yeah. Uh, but it's one of the many themes associated with the fellowship. And in particular, it's associated with Gandalf. It's associated with a lot of them, but in particular, Gandalf. And so this scene where he comes and he pushes away and we see his, with his magic, he chases the fell beasts away and they fly away. They retreat. And what seemed like this defenseless position, they had no cover to take. There was no hope. And then suddenly they're just basically brushed away as if it's no big issue. Mm-hmm. And it's just very cool. Just kind of, I love that idea, like that imagery of the music being pushed out with this new theme. Right, yeah. And that's that's very much what happens, and that's kind of like another um, example of, you know, using the... Uh, uh, you know, using the story and using those really fine details to kind of, like, to, to make it work for you. Oh, brilliant. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the brilliance of Howard Shore. It's his meticulous understanding of the story. Mm-hmm. I just love it. I, I'm geeking out about that ever since I found out that that was his goal. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I've mentioned it before. I'm going to say it again. Howard Shore went in here with a goal that he was so impressed by the craftsmanship and passion that was going into making the movies that he knew the movies were going to be a masterpiece mm-hmm. on par with the books themselves. Right. And so he thought... He wanted to make a masterpiece too. His goal was for there to be a trilogy to accompany the trilogy. The original trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, he wanted it to have a trilogy of masterpieces. The books, 
the movies and the soundtrack, the music. And he succeeded. Mm-hmm. All right. But how did he do it? He spent months after he decided that he wanted to do this. He spent months studying it. All right. He spent months. He was he read multiple translations. He read books that had been annotated by Tolkien's family. He had interviewed Tolkien's family. He was studying The Ring by Wagner. He was studying uh, like uh, Celtic lore. He was studying anything that he thought could have been influenced, that could have influenced J.R. Tolkien. He, mm-hmm. In other words, he spent as much time as possible nerding out about the story. And that's the secret. If right. you want to create a soundtrack that is nuanced and detailed, it has to come from a tremendous source of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is to be a super nerd about the story you're trying to tell. Yeah, exactly. You got to be into it. You got to, you got to, you don't necessarily have to want to learn everything about it, but I mean, you have to do it. So you do wanting to do it is helpful. It makes it helpful. It (laughs) makes it easier. Wanting to be a super nerd and wanting to, to, you know, to grasp the concept of everything is, it makes it better. It helps. I mean, because that's really, I like to, with a lot of my students, I like to describe it as like translating the story into music. Yeah. Like, that's easier to do if you have an intimate understanding of the story itself. Yes. But anyway, anyway I think we're just kind of repeating ourselves at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about this scene? No. No, I think that uh, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Just the space, the otherworldliness. It's fun. It's just a beautiful example of just the power that you can find in sound palettes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Right? Yep. They can be used for so many things. All right. But... Uh, let's go on to my last scene, which is shortly after this one. And it is Denethor confronting Faramir. All right. So Faramir just got back from Osgiliath. There was no way to defend it. It had been overrun and he made the right decision to get his men out of there and try to save as many lives as possible. Now, Denethor, his father, who has gone mad, mm-hmm. uh, is pissed saying well your dead brother would have kept it from falling like as you do and yeah and he's like basically like telling him like and he's telling him you need to go back and retake it and everyone's like no that's a suicide mission like every single person you send to try and take back Osgiliath is gonna die and you're not gonna get it back mm-hmm. and we need all the manpower we're gonna have but no and Faramir's got his whole kind of thing going on because it's his dad who's yeah. but anyway trying to win so his affection it's the scene when Faramir looks at him and he's like you wish now that my brother had died no, 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 I messed that up. Uh, <laughs> it's like you, you, you wish now that I had died, and then it was my brother who had survived. Mm-hmm. And then Denethor is like, "I do, I do wish it." Yep. And then he's like, "All right, well then, I'm gonna go take back Asgiliath." He's like, "I'm gonna go. I will do this mission." He's like, "And when I come back, please think better of me." And then Denethor has that cold response. He's like. That depends on the manner of your return. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's like, heart-wrenching. But, so, heart-wrenching scene of a mad would-be king denouncing his only living son, who has never measured up mm-hmm. in his eyes of what he wanted. Um, When this happens, I want you to pay special attention to the music that's going to play when Denethor admits that, yeah, he wishes... That Faramir had been the one who died and that mm. his brother Boromir had survived. So pay attention to that music and I want you to think, all right, what do you think the purpose of this music is? All right? All right. All right, let's do it. I do not think we should so lightly abandon the outer defenses. 
defenses that your brother Long held intact. What would you have me do? I will not yield the river in Pelennor unfought. Osgiliath must be retaken. My lord, Osgiliath is overrun. Much must be risked in war. Is there a captain here who still has the courage to do his lord's will? You wish now that our places had been exchanged. That I had died and Boromir had lived. Since you were robbed of Boromir, I will do what I can in his stead. If I should return, think better of me, Father. That will depend on the manner of your return. Thor. <laughs> oh man, that one still hurts. <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Oh man. All right. So there's a couple things that I want to point out. Right. Mm-hmm. So first, just kind of some music nerdy kind of stuff. A lot of the music in this scene is played on a flute, and the flute is actually playing the theme of Gondor. Now, this is a really cool thing mm-hmm. that I'm personally not aware of any other composer doing. I mean. I'm sure someone's done it. I've just, I haven't figured, found other examples. Mm-hmm. But Gondor has a theme. It has a couple themes. It has all things in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Have multiple themes. But it has a theme. Themes. But Gondor's theme has two different endings. All right. It has Gondor's theme and then the one ending, which is called Gondor Ascension, mm-hmm. which is used in moments where Gondor is living up to what it's supposed to be. The shining kind of kingdom of man. And then there's... Another cadence, another ending called Gondor's, uh, I want to say, decline. Gondor's decline, which again is used in moments where the music, where like where Gondor has just failed, Mm -hmm. where his decline has become a shadow of what it was supposed to be. And the cool thing about this is a very easy kind of way to go. It's like, oh yeah, we'll just do Gondor's theme decline, but it doesn't. What it does is it's Gondor's theme, and it attempts over and over and over again to do Gondor Ascension, Mm. Gondor Ascending. But it always fails. It never finishes the ending. It starts it, but then it fails. So then it restarts and tries again, but it fails again. Because this is a shadow of what Gondor is supposed to do. Denethor is kind kind of waxing and waning on his ideals for Gondor. I don't think we should so lightly give up the fight. Mm-hmm. I don't think we should just let go of such a strategic area. It's the one that we have defended for so long. Yeah. He's trying to basically p- portray the whole thing. It's like, oh yeah, we are the mighty Gondor. We're like, we, we have we have values here. But at the same time, he's he's crazy. Mm-hmm. Alright? He's at this point, it's all pretense. They can't he's not actually living by the values. He's just trying to uh Put on a show. I mean, I shouldn't say that he's put on a show. There's a quote by Gandalf that puts it really well, where he talks about Gondor declining because their kings became more obsessed with their lineage in terms of like who their ancestors were than they actually cared about their living relatives. 
Right. And I, so that's what's happening with Denethor here. Like he's, it's one of the many things happening where he's more obsessed with the idea of Gondor being a power than he is with actually taking care of Gondor. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that was really cool. But that's not the main focus that I had for here. That's just kind of a little tangent that I wanted to near it out about. The music going on during this experience, this horrible, horrible thing between Faramir and his father Denethor. Okay, so it has two things. All right? First, it, it very well pulls in a beautiful, what we'll call psychological function. The psychological mm-hmm. function is the number one function in music. It's the most important thing you can do. And that is to make sure you capture the emotions of your audience. That you enhance the emotions of your audience. This is a very mm-hmm. tragic scene, so it's very beautiful, tragic, kind of intimate music. Right. But the technical function, the theme, this music actually isn't what you would think it is. Mm-hmm. This is music associated with the orcs. Interesting. In fact, it's not just any theme for the orc. This is a very specific theme that they're using, which is the fourth age of Mordor. Mm-hmm. All right. So throughout. So let me explain that. So throughout all of this, it's a battle for the future of Middle Earth. All right. And to right. show that, Howard Shore has four different themes that are basically like end game themes. <laughs> hints at like who's going to win, who's going to come out on top. Mm -hmm. There is the fourth age of Mordor, which basically shows Sauron winning and the orcs taking over Middle-earth. And then there is the Shire reborn, Gondor reborn, and the fate of the ring. Mm, All right, so Gondor reborn and the Shire reborn, those are kind of like the good guys, happy ending, ultimate themes. Mm -hmm. Now the fate of the ring and Mordor's fourth age, both of those are kind of dark themes. And so what we see here is we see the waste of Gondor. We see Denethor and his madness making terrible decisions. He's about to basically send an entire battalion of soldiers to their death when they're about to be laid siege. Like they're about to be like, Gondor is about to be attacked. They need every able-bodied man they can. And rather than actually do a good job and do what he's supposed to as a steward and protect his people, he's more obsessed with his image. Mm. And so he sends, he's about to send these men to the west, which, to their death. And so this subtle, beautiful theme underneath it that sounds so sad and so tragic is actually just another arrangement of this theme that foreshadows the rise of the orcs, that, yes. it, that foreshadows the fall of mankind and the victory of Sauron, which I just think that's brilliant Mm -hmm. because there are so many different versions that we hear of this. We hear this theme associated with the witch king of Agmar. We hear this uh, theme associated with the orcs and the uruk We hear it in these big, brassy, pounding, rhythmic sections. Right. But then we also see it in this intimate conversation between a father and his son. Mm -hmm. And it shows that like the fate of... Middle Earth isn't just wrapped up in these massive battles, but it's in the small choices and the interactions of yep. people throughout the world as well. I mean, especially ones who are as consequential as Denethor and Faramir. Right. But I just thought that was brilliant because you could have just had Faramir's theme playing here mm-hmm. or Denethor's theme or even just keep going with Gondor. But to actually foreshadow that this kind of behavior, this kind of decision making is what has led to this decline mm-hmm. and that this decision making and this kind of behavior is what's going to lead to ultimate failure right. and the rise of this evil force I just thought that was but I geek out over that kind of stuff mm-hmm. yeah yeah lots of detail lots of things there and you know it, it, it's also interesting to if I could pull it back even you know because I think that this is a really fine detail 
but also kind of like hidden in sort of like sort of like hidden under the nose of oh, yeah. of kind of what we're what we're seeing here but the music didn't change like the tune didn't change essentially yeah. or the vibe rather yeah. didn't like change while they were both talking about like oh you wish you know you wish that Boromir died and then yes i do wish that it was it was like a moment of like they both were in like a place of vulnerability there yeah which even though like denethor's like because i mean like think about it like it's disgusting to like if, oh, you oh know, I mean, like, that's a terrible place to be in if you, you know, obviously, like, a parent losing their child tragically like that. But, like, that's pretty horrible, <laughs> you know, regardless <laughs> of, like, what you're going through to tell your living child, oh, yeah, I wish it was you instead. Yeah, it's like, cool context, still evil. Right, still evil, right. But, see, that's the thing, though, is to him it wasn't. To yeah. Denethor it wasn't. And they highlighted it that. Was just, it was just a confession. Yeah, it was There's a confession. There's that little pause. And he's not even looking at his son. He's just thinking, yeah. I do. Yeah. I do believe it. I do wish that. Yeah. And those moments of authenticity, I think, are really what show through, um, you know, shows through in the music because it, it, you know, they, there's that connection. Like, I mean, from a very like basic standpoint, the theme didn't change while right. the interaction was happening until, you know, a different point. Meaning, you know, which I think showed that, you know, it was, it was that moment of, in, of uh, authenticity there. There was. And of course, Denethor is mad. All right. There's, oh yeah, there's no, the, he's not one. And there's there's the infamous scene of him like chowing down on the tomatoes. Yeah, really it's weird coming thing. up. Yeah, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> infamous, just eating tomatoes, super sloppy and stuff. And so there's a theory that I really like mm-hmm. that uh, he's eating off of a pewter plate. Oh yeah. And so there's a lot of thought that this is lead poisoning, and that's mm-hmm. why he's gone mad is because of lead poisoning. Right. And I mean, again, cool example, cool cool motive, still evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but. There's just that heartbreaking scene when Faramir is, like, marching out with his men, and everyone knows that they're mm-hmm. about to die. Right. And Gandalf comes out, he's like, Faramir, stop this madness! Yep. And then he's like, and then he just, he can't stop him, he's like, uh, he's like, stay this madness! Mm-hmm. It's like, Denethor, like, whatever. And then, <laughs> uh, as he fails to convince him to stay, he tells him, he's like, Faramir, your father loves you. It's like, and he'll remember before the end yep and then there's that tragic scene that when Faramir comes back mm-hmm. and everybody like everyone else is dead and Faramir is sent back as like a message yeah. and he's riddled with arrows and everyone thinks he's dead so then Faramir decides he's like oh my gosh my son is dead all right better go light myself on fire yep all right I'm gonna light myself on fire on my on my son's pyre kind mm-hmm. of thing um there's a whole bunch of stuff going on but yeah, very complex. I forgot what my point here was. Yeah, Denethor <laughs> probably should should come talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> that might he, he he might he might benefit. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, it's uh, no. But one thing I will say about this is a little bit of kind of tools because we do we do get asked to offer like specific feedback. So if you want to do this with your own soundtracks, mm-hmm. right? If you want to get this level of detail and kind of uh, just nuance to the way you use your the way you use your music. Right. I mean, it's it's one thing to just say platitudes over and over again, like oh, lo- learn your story, or like get to know your story, dive deeper. Mm-hmm. But like, how do you actually dive deeper? I've shared some tools in the past, especially the last episode. Right, the whole last episode was entirely about just diving deeper and studying characters and how to bring that to life. And one of the things I talked about was how to trace the character's arc. Mm-hmm. How to mark the differences. Like, how did the character grow and change at the end of the story compared to the first, to the beginning? And then what were the key moments throughout the story? All right, that allowed for that. You can do something very similar 
If you want to treat uh, treat it like a larger scale character, treat the character like the story itself as a character. You want to learn through and see. All right, what is the central source of conflict? Mm-hmm. All right, who's fighting who, and why are they fighting? And then you want to think. All right, at the end, what are the possible outcomes? Right. All right. Well, you have one side win or another side win. That's the simplest way you could do it. Mm-hmm. You can go more detail. You're like, well, that neither of them could win. They both could win. You could have all kinds of whatever. But again, the more you spend with the story, the more you learn. So and this is this is more about like a a brief, succinct view. Mm-hmm. But spend your time, figure out what the main source of conflict is. What is each side of the conflict fighting for? What is their goal? Yeah. All right. And then as you go through, you can mark each moment in the story. What point does each side get closer to their goal? It could be stuff that they do. It could be stuff that other characters do. And like, uh, so it could be either direct action, like the bad guys uh, like launch an attack and they take a city. Awesome. They just got closer to their goal. Mm-hmm. I mean, not awesome, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It could be something more subtle like this, where there's infighting between mm-hmm. two characters on the quote unquote good guy side of things. All right. And you just want to mark each moment where either side gets a bit closer. Yes. Something gets them closer to the goal. And that's how you start to see like the web, the web that gets spun throughout the story. Mm -hmm. And it's these nodes in the web, these little moments where things happen, where shifts uh, in the story appear. One side gets a push of power. These are the moments Mm -hmm. where you can start to be more detailed. And of course, the more time, every story is different, but the more time you spend, my main thing is the more time you spend studying the story, the more sources of inspiration you have. Exactly. So the more information you know about a character, the more ideas will come to you on how to bring that character to life with music. Right. The more you know about the story and the power struggle and different things that happen in the story, the more sources of inspiration you get. Yeah. From a very top down like way of looking at it, the more like when you hear me say, make it make sense, the more you'll take that and be like, okay, I get what you're saying. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Make it make sense. It's, it's, it sounds, it sounds insane. Very it, frustrating. It, yeah. It sounds frustrating probably. And like cliche, but it's like j- the steps to make it make sense is to just, is to just dive in. Yep. Exactly. And, you'll, and you'll, you'll get what you need at the end of the day. That's, that's something I tell my students as well with like the gestures and music. But yeah. when you say like, make it make sense, it's essentially just have a reason. Yeah, put All a right. reason behind it. Just have a reason. You don't need to have the perfect reason. You just need to have a reason. You just need to have a reason. Yeah, make it make sense. If you get asked, why did you use this theme? You need to be able to defend it. Yeah. It's like, uh, so like, yeah. So, for example, here, why did you use the fourth age of Mordor theme in this scene, Mr. Shore? It's like, oh, well, I thought it was cool. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's not necessarily a good reason, but to say... Because I mean, if that's your reason, it can be, but it can be, you know, yeah. not probably if your goal is to make it a masterpiece. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Why does it make yeah. it make sense? Exactly. That's all it is. Just make it make sense. Have your reasons. Yep. If you have a reason why you're using the music in the way you are, mm-hmm. then it makes sense. Yeah. All right. It's it, that's how it's going to make a flow. Because, again, you're telling a story with your music. Mm-hmm. So and the story requires reasoning. They require reasoning. Exactly. All right. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, anything else you'd like to say about this one? Um, no, no, not that I haven't already said. Just yeah, look for your reason, look for your why, and uh, yeah, no, I think I think it's conversation led us where where it needed to. Magnificent. Mm-hmm. All right, 
What's your last scene? My last scene, I have a couple. I think I'm going to go with um, Frodo forsakes Samwise Gamgee. Oh. Now, yep. we got to leave it on. We, we got to uh, keep, we got to leave it sad because we're going to, well, we, we know what happens next. So, Mr. Frodo. <laughs> yeah. Oh. All right. Awesome. So why don't you explain what happens in the scene? So what's going to happen is we are going to see, basically, we're going to see Smeagol infiltrate Sam and Frodo's relationship. Is it Smeagol or is it Gollum at this point? Um, I guess it's both of them. Both of them oh, yeah, are no, the it's Smeagol now. because, yeah, I guess because yeah. we've seen the, yeah. the scene the beforehand. Yeah, they're, they're the same. Um, but yeah, so, so Smeagol, Gollum, he's going to infiltrate Sam and Frodo's relationship. And I really want you to focus on on that shift. You're going to know the shift when you see it. When you um, hear it. Or when you, when you hear it, right. You know, you're going to see or hear the, essentially, um, it's a it's a pretty dramatic mood shift from, like, betrayal to, you know, like, sadness almost. Yeah. yeah. So, so, in essence, what happens is we open up on the scene and they're sleeping. Mm-hmm. All right. And Sam is fighting off his sleep, but then he eventually falls asleep. And that's when Gollum gets up. He was faking to be asleep. He takes all of their food. He throws it off the cliff and then puts some crumbs on Sam to frame him. Mm-hmm. So then when they wake up and Sam says, let's get some food, it's all gone. What happened to it? And then he blames Gollum for eating it. But Frodo knows that Gollum doesn't touch the elven food. He doesn't like it. It burns him. Mm -hmm. And so then Gollum points out the crumbs, frames Sam, and it causes a lot of issues, especially Mm -hmm. when Sam asks, uh, like, especially after a fight between Sam and Gollum, he tells Mr. Frodo, that ring is a terrible burden. Let me take it for you for a little bit. Let me share the load. And Sam being an amazing guy, that's all he wants. He just Mm -hmm. wants to help Frodo. Uh, but Gollum has been whispering in Frodo's ears Mm -hmm. and he told him earlier that at some point Sam is going to try and steal the ring from him. He's going to ask for it and then Mm -hmm. he'll take it. So now Frodo's going to get paranoid. There's going to be a big fight, a whole bunch of drama. It's a wonderful scene. Mm -hmm. Shall we watch it? Let's do it. Yep. I'm sorry to wake you, Mr. Frodo. We have to be moving on. It's dark still. It's always dark here. It's gone! The elven bread! What? That's all we have left. He took it! He must have! Smeagol? No, no, not poor Smeagol. Smeagol hates mercy elf bread. You're a lying rat! What did you do with it? He doesn't eat it. He can't have taken it. Look. What's this? Crumbs on his jackets. He took it! He took it! I've seen him. He's always stuffing his face when Master's not looking. That's a filthy lie! Oh. You stinking two-faced snake! Sam! Sorry! Stop it! Ow! Sam! I'll get it! Sam! No! Oh my... I'm sorry. I didn't mean it to go so far. I was just so... so angry. Here, just... just rest a bit. I'm alright. No. No, you're not alright. You're exhausted. It's that golem. It's this place that thing around your neck. 
I could help a bit. I could carry it for a while. Carry it for a while. I could carry it. I could share the load. The load. The load. Get away! I don't want to keep it. I just want to help. me. You can't help me anymore. You don't mean that. Go home. Powerful, powerful scene. Yes, very right. much so. So, this is your scene. Mm-hmm. Take it away. So, what, what do you want us to think about? What do you want to talk about? Yeah, so, really going to focus in on that kind of like, sort of like that ending that ending part where we sort yeah. of see the music swap from super dark and kind of, um, I guess, melancholy, you know, if, if you could call it that, I guess. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. To the Shire theme. Yes. For a yes, second. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yep. That's what I was going to bring up. It swaps from, and I'll, I'll go into all of the different themes that are happening, but it mm-hmm. goes to the Shire theme. It goes to the Shire theme, but the Shire theme isn't the way we've heard it. It's much right. darker this time. It's mm-hmm. more, as you said, melancholy. Yeah. Because the entire time through these movies, these characters, all they want is to get the mission done and go home. And go home. They're, they, right. So many times when they're like hitting the rough patches, that's how they keep themselves going they think of home yeah and now frodo is saying go home mm-hmm. but sam doesn't want to go home not like this right. he doesn't want to abandon his friend to a treacherous what sam the creature of Gollum, mm-hmm. who is going to he knows he's going to try and kill frodo probably and steal the ring mm-hmm. so he doesn't trust him, but he doesn't want to go home he doesn't want to abandon his friend i mean he wants to go home but not like this right and so that's just such kind of cool thing where you take a theme that is set to like everything that the characters aspire to. Their goal is just to get home, to return mm-hmm. home at the end of the day. And then you make it perverse. Yeah. You twist it and you turn the thing that they want most into something that they don't want. Or that mm-hmm. He doesn't want. It's just beautiful little things you can do like that with the music. And again, at the core of all this, just learning how to tell a story with your music. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly, I'm sorry. Yeah. I go on tangents, <laughs> but the, no, it's you're right. It's beautiful. how That shift happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I really wanted to kind of bring up the concept of the self here mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. like, this is like super, super deep, but it's a masterpiece. You got to go this, you got, if, if you want to <laughs> make a masterpiece, you got to go this deep. You got to, that is true. Um, you know, so, Basically, what 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 I'm gonna kind of say about the self is, I mean, it's it's what it sounds like. It's you. It's like yeah. it, it's like an individual. You can call it whatever you want. Your spirit, your essence, your G force, your 
you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's that thing that makes you, you. And, um, for the, for the hobbits here, the Shire is a big part of the self. And the theme represents that, you know, represents that like authenticity. It's like an authenticity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I feel like I talk about authenticity. I mean, I talk about it like my themes a lot because there's a finite number of them, but, um, (laughs) that's probably not true, but, uh, regardless, they, uh, it's so fascinating to see that after all of this, you know, after all of this kind of like struggle and tumultuous journey and everything, they, Sam shows a moment of like vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So like, that's how I interpreted it is it like, it like hit him. Like you're betraying me right now. Like this is like, this is who we are. This is what we're doing this for. And you've separated yourself from the self, right? So you've separated yourself from a piece of your own authenticity, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, like, if you've ever had an experience like that in your life, that, like, sucks. (laughs) Like, when you experience... I mean, again, it's like an over-analytical, like, you know, you can essentially look at any situation and be like, oh, yeah, that person was not authentic to themselves, and that's why they felt negative or didn't do well in that particular situation. It's pretty analytical, but you can see it. You know, you can see it, and you've probably felt it at some point. So that's kind of where I... That's what I interpreted from the scene. I really, really like it. and that is important to notice, because Mm -hmm. that is a very common theme in many, many, if not all good stories, Mm -hmm. is this role of identity. Yeah. All right, so if you study story structure, like character arcs, there are all kinds of different moments. The the basic arc of a character is how they change throughout the story. All right. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the story, they start one way. By the end of the story, they are another. They have changed mm-hmm. somehow. Their beliefs are different. Their behavior is different. Their status is different. Something about them has changed. That's what makes the story interesting. Yeah. Now, throughout the arc, depending on how deep you want to go, there are lots of different moments that you can look for. One of them is what's referred to as the moment of truth. Mm-hmm. All right. And the way that the moment of truth, well, the moment of truth is basically a moment where the character has to make a decision. Yeah. All right. And their decision. Their action that they take will reflect whether they have changed or not. And if they have changed, how have they changed? Is it for the better or is it for the worse? All right. So there are lots of moments through many amazing stories where there is a fake moment of truth. Or maybe not a fake moment of truth. There's mm-hmm. just multiple moment of truths. Right. We have a character who has to make a decision. We're like, all right, have they changed? Are they different? Have they grown? Oh, they didn't. Mm-hmm. No, they failed. They fell short. They stuck to their old ways. Yep. And... All of that, this going back to your idea of authenticity to yourself, being true to yourself, a lot of that conflict comes from the character's inability or desire to not acknowledge how they've changed, Mm -hmm. to not acknowledge parts of their identity. And this is a huge part just with people in general, because all stories, all good stories reflect life. Mm -hmm. That's how we relate to them. But the idea that... When people are inauthentic to themselves, when they, when they don't want to acknowledge certain parts of who they are, or whether that's uh, a hobby that they enjoy, or a kind of humor that they have that's a bit nerdy or cringy, mm-hmm. or whatever part of it themselves that they feel like they have to hide, whether big or small, that causes stress in mm-hmm. your life. It causes issues. And that gets reflected so well in so many great stories like this. Here, yeah. we see like the master manipulation of Gollum between mm-hmm. these two best friends between these two brothers who have, well, not like brothers in all but blood, who have like traveled thousands and thousands of miles on this Mm -hmm. journey. And they're so close. They're so close. And yet they get pulled over because of Gollum. They get sidetracked. They get 
the all is lost moments. It's yeah. also called the dark night of the soul where the characters are brought to the cusp of giving up. Mm-hmm. And here we see Sam does leave. Mm-hmm. Frodo doesn't want him. He doesn't know what to do. They have no food left. Sam just leaves. And it's not until later when he's climbing down that he finds the food that Gollum had ditched mm-hmm. that he realizes, oh, Frodo's in danger. Yes, actually. I'm going now, kind right. of thing. Now, throughout all this, the music portrays this shift. And again, we talked earlier about how like uh, Howard Shore wanted to write a masterpiece, and to do that, he created 90 different themes. Mm-hmm. But we've talked about a couple of them, and two of them we hear are very like very familiar by this point. Mm-hmm. All right, The first one, the moment when Gollum accuses Sam, where he goes, what's this? And he fi- and he grabs the crumbs off his jacket that he had sprinkled there. And he goes, he took it. Mm. All right. The theme we hear is a variation of the evil of the ring theme. Mm. All right. So we hear, again, that music that's associated anytime something evil, something twisted, something wrong is yeah. committed out of covetedness for the ring. All right. We hear that beautiful, sinister little theme. Mm-hmm. Now, after that, a lot of stuff happens. You hear a couple different variations of different parts of Gollum's theme. Something that I find interesting is when they're fighting, Gollum and Sam are like on the floor wrestling and like trying to kill each other. Mm-hmm. The music you hear is actually a variation of the pity of Gollum. The mm-hmm. idea where Frodo looks at Gollum and sees what he could become because he's a bearer of the ring. Right. All right. But then after that, when Sam is saying, share the load. All right. Let me take the ring for a bit. Give you a break. Sam's not doing that for any kind of evil intention. He mm-hmm. generally wants to help his friend. Yeah, if you see the scene, actually, Frodo interprets it as yes. he's trying to do it for, like, his own exactly. like, covetedness for it. And the yeah. music is playing part of what's called the psychological function of film music. Psychological function of music, film music, says that the music has a role in not only portraying the emotions and enhancing the emotions, but revealing information about a character's thoughts. Mm-hmm. All right, and here... We hear another variation of the history of the ring. Mm -hmm. And we know that Frodo has seen firsthand how the ring corrupts people. His experience with Boromir, a man that he thought was a friend, a man that was supposed to protect him, turns on him to try and take the ring from him. And that's a whole other story. But he's remembering this. He's remembering all the experiences. He's seen how his uncle was corrupted by it. He's seen how Gollum was corrupted by it. That's all he can think of. And there's this little theme, the history of the ring. That is portray- that is revealing his thoughts. He's thinking of every time that the ring has corrupted a person, and he thinks, that's what's happened. Mm-hmm. Now Sam has turned on me. Yeah. The one true friend, the greatest friend, the one companion who's going to be there the entire time, he has turned on me. Mm-hmm. All right? So that's an evil, terrible th- sound. And then after again, again, the Shire's theme is what we hear next when he tells him, go home. Yeah. All right. Now, something I want to talk about, like kind of a takeaway, because I like to have a takeaway now from all these things. Mm-hmm. You'll notice that each of those four themes that I talked about, I talked about uh, the evil of the ring, the pity of Gollum, history of the ring, and Shire. Every single one of them, I describe them as a variation. Mm-hmm. Now, that is something that often gets overlooked by new composers. But every single time you reuse a theme, oh, well, I say not every single time, but nine times out of ten that you reuse a theme, you need to change it. All right, because the way it's used in one scene isn't going to be identical to the way it's used in another. Right. Now, you can change. We've talked about the three pillars of emotion and music, valence, energy, and size. Those That's a great way. 
All right, every time you're in a new scene, you can think about your theme. All right, does this theme need to sound darker or brighter than the last time? Does it mm. need to sound bigger or smaller than the last time? Does it need to have more energy, more intensity than the last time? Or does it need to come back down? That's just a very basic way you can do it. But right. you can always, again, kind of a theme <clears throat> of this entire podcast has been dive deeper. So you can spend mm. a lot of time. Right now I'm working on a soundtrack and I'm working on the first piece. I have 10 pages of notes. Mm-hmm. 10 pages of notes for one two-minute piece of music. Um that's just how I like to work. I do lots of like background research stuff. Not everybody's that way. Yeah. Uh, but I like to find lots of re- uh, lots of inspiration that way. And so you can go to any kind of level that you want. But the basic level, every time you repeat a theme, you want it to be a variation. Mm-hmm. All right. You want to have, like, again, is it going to be darker or brighter? Is it going to be bigger or smaller? Is it going to have more or less energy? All right. That's the bare minimum. Because you want to make sure that it matches the new setting for the scene. Right. Now, there are exceptions. John Williams, Jurassic Park. Uh, the Jurassic Park theme, when they're flying in on the helicopter, I... I I would bet if I were a betting man, I would bet money it's the exact same cue, exact same recording that they use at the end of the movie mm-hmm. when they're leaving the park and the Tyrannosaurus Rex is roaring and there's yeah. the falling banner. Exact same theme, the Jurassic Park theme. Like I said, exact same recordings is what I'd bet. Just gonna save some money. Mm-hmm. But at that point, that's different. That's a different genre. That's a nice way to bookend a journey. It's called an action adventure theme. And they're very often start off. Big action adventure theme to kickstart it, same exact theme to end it, mm-hmm. and then you just have like the variations in between. But, um, I think, yeah, so yeah, kind of summarize everything I wanted to say mm-hmm. is just the masterful way that music can reveal thoughts and themes and emotions, uh, through the very clever uses of motifs and themes. And more importantly, the importance of applying variation. Mm-hmm. Of making sure every single time you reuse a theme, you don't need ninety themes like Howard Shore, but if you've got if you've got a good number of themes or however many themes you got, whatever you do, yeah. every time they repeat, they need to have some variation, something to tell the story. Because if you've got a character theme, the character grows. The character mm-hmm. is different in each scene as the film moves than they were from the previous scene. They have new experiences, and the music needs to reflect that change. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Make it make sense. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> all right. So I think that's all I had to say about this. Anything mm-hmm. else you want to say? No, no, that's pretty much it. It was, uh, it was a basically just a real simple, short, little, you know, kind of piece of the scene for me that I wanted to kind of point out. So nice, yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of another podcast. Yes. All right. That so it does. thank you, everyone. If you listen to this, we have, uh, we have to do the second part now. Mm-hmm. This is the extended film, so we will watch the second half. We will record another podcast and we will release that just as soon as we can. I want to thank our sponsor, Tabletop Music Academy. Mm-hmm. You can find it on tabletopcomposer.com. Completely 100% free music education. Four classes. Super cool. Right? It is. It mm-hmm. is. There's a free <laughs> online class on harmony, free online class on melody writing, and two, two free classes on orchestration and arranging. Mm-hmm. All right. Check it out. 100% free. Yeah, it's a a long project I've been working on, but Mm -hmm. uh, I'm excited about it. So until next time, my friends, keep studying, keep working hard, keep writing new music. We will see you in the next podcast. All right. Bye-bye. All right.